0: Well, good morning. As I said, those of you who have braved the, the storm that hasn't got here yet, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the first six verses of chapter two of First John this morning. Uh, John is moving into uh, is moving on from his uh, uh, his his beginnings and his his uh, his statements about our salvation in Christ and and about sin, and he's going to expand on. On, on that concept of sin and and how God has dealt on our behalf for that, He's also going to uh, give us uh, four. Uh, they're actually tests, if you will, but He's going to give us four truths about the relationship. Of obedience and faith, and uh, they are basically uh, throughout the book of First John. John gives things: if this you are, if this you're not. You know, a, a Christian is basically the idea uh, when we go through that, and he's going to he's going to be doing that as we as we uh, as we move into this text this morning. But it's all still in the backdrop of this encroaching heresy called Gnosticism which uh, which has tried to define uh, spirituality I guess you would say uh, as as uh, uh, there is a in in terms of Greek philosophy, uh, that there's a dualism, that there's a separation between body and spirit, and anything that has to do with the physical, uh, the material is evil, and anything that has to do with the spirit is good and okay. And 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 it takes and it will develop into this is called insipid Gnosticism at this point in time, in about about eighty AD. Uh, it, it's 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 the encroaching of this philosophy that. And the second century is going to take on a, full, a full-blown heresy. But basically, it denied that Christ could be both man and God. Uh, that's just not possible. He could not have a material body because material is evil and God couldn't touch that. And it'll develop into all different kinds of branches. There's some branches that'll have all these various emissaries between the deity and man that that move the deity away so that man can so that uh, God can somehow commune with man and some of those will see Jesus one of those uh, some kind of spirit being uh, he won't have won't have a physical body there's there's another branch that will will come up with the idea that there was a guy who was born of of uh, two people named Joseph and Mary, and they named him Jesus, and the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism, and left at the crucifixion. In all of those theories, if any of those theories were true, there is no salvation. It doesn't exist. Uh, Christ had to be both God and man in order, to, in order to pay the penalty for my sin. That's the bottom line. He couldn't do it any other way. He had to be holy God. Only God could justify us. And he had to be man because the penalty had to be paid. And if a man didn't pay it, then you and I would have to pay it. That, that's the bottom line. Uh, that's the bottom line. So, so uh, this whole heresy as it's developing, and of course, remember John and his writing is in, at this point is in Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is steeped in Greek philosophy. So, uh, a lot of this kind of stuff came out of that area. Uh, the Eastern Church is where most of the early heresies were born. Uh, so, uh, and this is this is one of the earliest. It's still around today. Uh, it's still around in different forms today. It's it's found in in some of it's found in uh, the Jehovah Witnesses specifically. A little bit. It's a touch of it in, in Mormonism. Uh, there's some of it in. Uh, I just went blank. Anyway, I'll maybe think of it, uh, but at Seventh-day Advent, um, it has some of it as well. Uh, but, uh, but at any rate, uh, oh, uh, Christian science, that's the one I gave you all their quotes on uh, last week, I think it was. Uh, but anyway, all of those have little touches of this, uh, little touches of this. The old heresy the heresies of today are nothing new. They're the old heresies of first century. Uh, so anyway, this morning, that's where we're going to be going. We're going to be going through verses, verses uh, one through six. And uh, uh, and looking at uh, at knowing that we know him, that's uh, I, I took that out of the text, so I figured that was Sorry a good title. Okay, so we'll look. Uh, we're going to look first of all at verses one and two, and I just entitled that "Knowing We Have an Advocate." Uh, it begins by saying. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sin, and not only our and, and not only ours only, but also for for the whole world. So to we'll look at look at those verses first of all first the first thing we see is he goes my little children just kind of keep in mind uh, this is a, a a very typical John greeting uh, he uses it seven times in first John this greeting my little children uh, it's it's an intimate pastoral care kind of idea is is being expressed by him keep in mind that John is an elderly man at this time he's in his late 70s maybe early 80s somewhere in there uh, uh, he is the only living apostle left. He is probably one of the few living people who actually walked with, talked with, saw, touched, and heard Jesus. So uh, he's kind of a a legend, I guess you would say, in, in, in his world. Uh, but uh, he comes across as a parent or even a grandchild. Uh, grandparent. Uh, here he has a very deep care for these people. That's what this is expressing. He cares deeply about them. That's what you want your pastor to be able to do, is to care about you. Uh, that's that's part of the job. That's part of the role, is caring for the flock, the entire elder staff. That's what, they, that's what they're to do. It's kind of a common expression, actually, in the New Testament. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, he He said that he treated them as a nursing mother who who tenderly cares for her own children. That's the, way he, that's the way he saw He, he, saw, he saw them. It, shows, it, it pictures someone cuddling a baby is the idea here. That's how much he cared for them. He, he, he also said that, that uh, in verse 11, that he was as a father to his own children. And it talks about uh, the training and the discipline and the care that he invested in them. Uh, so basically, he saw his role in, in nurturing that young flock at Thessalonica as raising children. And that's that's how John expresses it here. Uh, Peter, his word was beloved. Mm-hmm. That was his word. That's the way he saw them. They were beloved to him. They were beloved to the Father, and they were beloved by him, as he refers to... As he as he refers to these uh, to these to these uh, uh, to these believers, uh, John was a spiritual father to them. As I said, he was probably around eighty, and he's the last surviving apostle at this at this at this juncture. He's and he goes on and he says, "I am writing these things to you." Uh, he's. He uses the singular I here. He makes it very specific that he himself, John the Apostle, is writing these words. That's what he wants them to know. I'm writing to. I am writing to you, my little children. That's the idea he's saying here. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, and he and he goes on and he, he he tells him the purpose of his writing. The purpose of his writing is that you won't sin, is so that you do not so that you would not sin. That's that's what he says to him. Uh, sin breaks our fellowship. Sin breaks fellowship with God, and it breaks fellowship with our fellow believers as well. And that's what he's saying here. I don't want that to happen. Uh, and and he, he's he's letting them know. I'm writing to you to hold you hold you to the truths of Scripture. In other words, he could be saying. He said I'm writing to you that your lives would be in conformity with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that is what he is going to say as he moves through this, as he moves through this text. Excuse me. Uh, he says that you do not sin. Uh, keep in mind that as a believer, you, you understand something here. The world, the people of the world, sin because that's who they are. They're sinners. You realize only we sin by choice, we choose to do it. The rest of the world does it because that's who they are, it's natural. Uh, only a believer can, uh, can, can, can clench his fist and stick it in the face to God and say, I will not. That's, incidentally, that's sin. Uh, but uh, but th- that's the idea here. We're, we no longer uh, are, are enslaved to sin. Paul wrote to the Church at Rome in chapter 6. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, what he's saying there is, that world of sin, we can resist, we can stay away from. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful with the temptation to make the way of escape. Sin literally means to miss the mark, it's hamartia. Uh, the simple deal is means to miss the mark. When used in scripture, it means to miss the mark of God's holy standard. Ultimately, it's what it, what it means. And basically, what John is saying here, he's saying, "I'm writing to you to you that you may not sin." He says, "But the possibility is there. In fact, even the probability is there that you will sin, because we still are invested in this this unregenerate body at this point. Our souls are regenerate. Our internals regenerate." but we still live in a corrupt world we still still face temptation that hasn't been removed we have we've been removed from the power of sin but we haven't been removed from the presence and sometimes we cave and that's what that's what John is is talking about here he says there is a possibility but he says you don't have to that's what he's saying here in verse 1 he says uh, he, because he goes on to say if anyone sins he says you, I'm telling you not to sin I want to keep you from sin but if you do but if you do that's what he's saying here <clears throat> and incidentally you notice that he changed the plural now because he includes himself because he's still a human being too he hasn't been translated to heaven yet either and so high schoolers, huh? oh. high, schoolers. high schoolers upstairs they're doing. Things. That's subtle and something. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, the you of today. Okay. I know, right arms. I thought, that can't be thunder. Anyway, <laughs> I guess it could have been. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's saying, uh, uh, he's, he's basically saying believers do not have to sin but they will. Notice verse 8. If anyone, chapter 1, verse 8, if anyone says uh, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10 says to go on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make ourselves a liar and his word is not in us. Incidentally, that was a comment to the Gnostics because the Gnostics said they had no sin. Uh, they had achieved the higher level. Yes? Um, does that refer to us sitting, as Christians or us sinning before we become Christians? No. Now. This is all now. This is all here and now. This is the, he is talking to believers. When he says the we there, he's all Christians. That's who he's talking to. He says, he goes on to say, he says, um, the we includes all believers. Uh, just as we said in 1 Corinthians 10, it's common to man. Temptation is common to, to all of us. And then he goes on to say, then he gets into the, to the, to the fix for all of this. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, the righteous. That's the next thing. Uh, Advocate is parakletos. The word means one who comes alongside another. John's got... John's Gospel. Uh, this same word is used um, uh, used in John fourteen six twenty six and sixteen seven, and it's translated both comforter and helper in those places. Uh, that's the idea here. Uh, that's what a Paracletos is. It's someone who brings comfort to someone who is in trouble, who stands alongside them in that trouble, who defends them in that trouble. That's that's the idea here. Now, the common way it's taught in modern day. Uh, Christianity is is that it's it, it mimics our legal system which it really doesn't but it kind of does uh, it, it, mim- it mimics our legal system that God is the judge Satan's the prosecutor and Jesus uh, Jesus is a defense attorney but apparently it was never a professional attorney uh, that the Greeks didn't know anything about that it was somebody who would stand alongside you it would stand alongside you and face the charges with you that would would assist you and there's a number of examples in Greek uh, classic. Greek where where different orators were defended by the other orators and that kind of thing but the but the but the the idea here is pretty close basically basically we have someone who advocates on our behalf before God that's that's what it, that's what this is saying someone who comes alongside us and advocates for us on our side. Now the interesting thing where it really deviates from our courts just a little bit is that everyone who stands before this judge is guilty. All of us are guilty of sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Romans 823. Uh, well, all of sin. That's that's the bottom line. Uh, they've all done it. The other side of this is the other thing that is true in this court, that is not necessarily true in every court, is the paracletos who stands next to us, because he is standing there, we are acquitted. That's the bottom line. We're acquitted. We're automatically acquitted. That's, that's, that's the idea here. It's because uh, Romans 8 one, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. And it's because Romans 8.34, Christ died, raised, and now intercedes on our behalf. That's, that's, that's the idea that he's wanting us to see here. He is our helper, and he is righteous, though fully God, he is fully man. And as fully man, he was able to pay the penalty. That's the idea here. Uh, full, and, and these are in complete harmony. John four thirty four, Acts three fourteen, uh, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews two eleven that he is he is our brother. In Hebrews four fifteen, that's in his humanity. Uh, he knows our frailties in his, human, in his humanity. And in seven twenty eight, he saved us by his death, and he now intercedes on our behalf that's what this advocacy is all about he, he comes to our defense he comes to our help he comes and stands alongside and we are therefore acquitted that's, that's the idea here he's the one who met the, met the, uh, the demands of the law and therefore is right, in his righteousness he is able to stand beside us and we are acqu- acquitted because that righteousness is then impugned to us we're not righteous in ourselves, but we stand in His righteousness. That's the that's the picture that He's giving us here. That's His advocacy. And then He goes on to say, He tells us how He something about uh, about that adv ad, uh, can't say it now advocacy uh, as He as He because He Himself. It says, is our propitiation for our sin, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now, what are you saying? A pitch, propitiation is a word that means to appease or to atone, and it stresses God's holiness as being fully satisfied, His wrath appeased, His righteous demands are met through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. That's That's what propitiation means. God turned the wrath of God away from you and took it out on Jesus. At the cross. That's 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 what it means. He bore it. The right penalty that I deserve, he took. That's what that means. That's what propitiation means. And it also means God's no longer mad at me. You know? Can I say Amen? Yes. Amen. You can say it as loud as you like. Maybe you hear and make them hear it up there. Anyway. uh, Overcome the... <laughs> but anyway, at any rate, yeah, that's that's the idea here. He he's the propitiation. He says he himself. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ himself. He's the very one. He's the only one. Jesus Christ, the righteous. from verse one. He is the righteous one. 1 John four ten. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. It was an act, of, it was a demonstration of God's love that He made it possible that He could turn His wrath away from you. That's that's what He's saying here. Romans 3.25 Well, I'm going to pick up a little bit more. Kind of get the context here. Start at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then he makes the statement, all sin and come short of the glory of God. Then in verse 24, he says, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the, the, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith for a demonstration of His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. That's what He's saying here. That's that's the idea that's going on. Hebrews two seventeen also there in in Hebrews he's called our propitiation. It's a consistent uh, a consistent uh, usage. In fact, when the translators of the Old Testament into Greek, uh, the Septuagint, or you'll see it in your text sometimes as the LXX, that's the Septuagint. Um, in Exodus twenty five ten through eleven, they translate the mercy seat as the propitiation. Because that's what it did. That's where the where the sins of the nation were propitiated annually. Of course, that one had to be repeated constantly. But uh, uh, but uh, that's 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 uh, the idea here. Uh, God initiated the love to a sinful world by giving His Son to cover sin and remove the guilt. the uh, The gift results resulted in the death of Jesus on the cross. And he became our acceptable sacrifice, making amends and redeeming man from the curse that curse that had been placed upon him, removing the wrath of God from from him. Uh, Jesus, in so doing. He uh he fixed the broken relationship between God and man. He brought peace, Romans five one. He brought reconciliation, Second Corinthians five twenty through twenty-one. He removed and paid the debt, first John one uh, one seven and nine by his atoning death. And then he goes on and he says, says this word that troubles a lot of people. We'll try to deal with it just a little bit here. He goes on and he says, "...but not only ours, but for those of the whole world." Now understand something. First of all, the scriptures do not teach universal salvation. They do not teach that, oh, you may have to pay a little bit of time in some purgatory type place, and then if enough prayers are made for you, and you you uh, um, you uh, capture enough credits from the saints, which incidentally you realize that saint is just another word for Christian. There are no executive branch that are called saints. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it's it's not that God's love. It's not the Ron Bell. Teaching uh, heresy <laughs> that God's love overrules all the attributes, and therefore, eventually, God will send everybody to heaven. It's none of that. That's not what's being spoken of here. Uh, literally, what this, what these, what these words say here is concerning or pertaining to the whole world, and he's not talking about universalism because the Bible teachly, clearly teaches that there is a hell. And that those who do not receive Jesus Christ will go there. Revelation chapter 20, 1. Chapter 21, verses 7 through 8. He who overcome he he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable, the murderer, the sexually immoral person, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, which follows the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. That's where the unfaithful dead go. It's not universalism. Basically, basically, what this is saying is Christ... While Christ's atonement may be infinitely sufficient, it's effectually limited to only those who who are called in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the elect, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, the whole chapter, I didn't put all the verses, but uh, basically the book of Ephesians, if you will. Uh, But only through the atoning, uh, the atonement provided by God, uh, by His Son, can sin be appeased John 4.16 I am the way, I am the truth I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me that's, that's the bottom line here so basically basically what he's saying is, is, is this can, pertains to those whom God has saved that's, that's who it pertains to doesn't, it doesn't save anyone outside that scope and it can't. Then he goes on, and he's going to go into these, what we could say, are tests um, in verses in verses uh, three through six. Knowing, knowing him through obedience is how I entitle this. And he, and he, and he, and he's going to take verses three through six, and he says, John, here, John is going to give us four ways that we're able to affirm or assure. That we are in Christ. It also gives us a way to distinguish between true and false professions, uh, to understand the relationship between obedience and to true Christianity. <clears throat> and we and we should be understanding this as we go through these verses. That what he is giving to here, uh, what he's giving to us here, is is our ethical principles. That knowledge involves obedience. The more the more you know, the more you are to, to be obedient. The Gnostics claimed they had super knowledge, but there was no obedience in their life. It was completely void. Uh, this says uh, th- these texts say that knowing God means you obey God. Uh, secondly, secondly, that union involves involves uh, in, well that verses three and four will talk about the knowledge involves obedience. And verse six is going to talk about union involves imitation. In other words, if you are truly united with Christ, you'll walk like Christ. You're going to reflect Christ. Uh, the world will see Christ in you. Uh, those are those are the things that mark out Christianity according to John as we move through this. So the first the first thing he says is verse 3, obedience proves fellowship. Verse 3 says, "And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments." Now, that's kind of a strange Kind of a interesting uh, wording in English. The Greek has a little bit different. Well, not different, but uh, it's really the same. Uh, but uh, it's going to give us a little, little, little bit different understanding of it. He says, "By this, this is the transition. Advocate going from the advocate and the and the." Uh, um, a propitiation, we now can verify the relationship that those things establish for us. You know, that's, that's what he's saying here in verse 3. We can, we can know that we know Him. We know conveys certainty. It's not a hope or a wish or a maybe. It's we know. Uh, it's, it's, the tense of this verb says it means that we know this. It means to know it, experience, it means to have it as a, a continuing perceived experience. That's, that's what this word means. It's the word gnoskos, which, which means knowledge or knowing, to know. And, and that's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, he's saying that this is a continual, present experience in our lives, to know him. I know him when I go to bed at night, I know him when I wake up in the morning, and I know him throughout the day. I sense his presence in my life. That's really the idea here, to know him. The second one is that we know that we know. Uh, is is uh conveys the certain uh, uh, or or we have come to know him excuse me we have come to know him is also gnosis but it's in a little different form it's in a present tense and it means to look back at a past action we can look back to when we came to know him and we can see the continuing results of having known Him in our life, and it will progress into the future. That's, that's, what this, that's how this verb is constructed. So it means that we live day by day knowing that we know Him, and we know that we know Him because we, we came to know Him in the past, and we experience Him throughout the day today, and it will continue on. That's, that's the idea here. It's a double no, is the idea. <coughs> One commentator said, we could translate it this way, by this we have come to to recognize uh, uh, that we have come to him in the past with a present abiding result, if we keep his commandments. That's that's the idea here. And incidentally, this is not the Gnostic idea of some secret knowledge, something that's hidden, something that's transis, uh, transcendent uh, knowledge that's limited to elitist group, uh, such as the Watchtower Society. You ever talk to a Jehovah Witness? You know? They can only tell you what the Watchtower Society said. That's, you know, it's not a select, select group. This is you and me. This is all believers. All of us have this ability to know that we know Him. And as we walk in obedience, we can know that we know Him even better. Uh, That should be the progress of our life. That's called the sanctification. That's progressive sanctification. That's what He's talking about here: is that as we know Him, we know Him better. By the time you get to the end of your life, it shouldn't be a big step. You know, that's 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 the idea here. And all and by the way. The if, when he says, if, if we keep his commandments, mm-hmm. that's not conditioned on, uh, the if is not uh, conditioned, uh, condition to know him. Mm-hmm. The if uh, is, is, uh, uh, is being used as a convi- condition, as a condition for us to know that we know. Mm-hmm. In other words, you don't keep his commandments and that's how you come to know him. You know him and because you know him you keep his commandments that's that's really the idea here that's that's the idea he's saying we come to know him speaks of being in a personal saving relationship ephesians two eight and nine and when he says he says he says uh, if we keep his commandments, the word keep here means a watchful care. It's an external and in, it, uh, it's externally and internally. And it's also a present tense word, which means that it's a way of life, uh, that it's, uh, it's that obedience of following Jesus is a pattern of our life. Uh, that's That's the way we live. In other words, John is saying here, somebody who had a reaction to an altar call one day, and went down to the front and got fire insurance, and went right back to his old life and never changed. That isn't true. That isn't what happens. Someone who goes to that altar call, goes down front, repents, changes his life, and becomes more Christ-like, that's true. That's, that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. Keep, it's a watchful care, it's an obedience, it's a, it's a pattern of life. That's, that's what he's wanting them to understand here. And he says commandments. And commandments here, understand something. That doesn't mean the Old Testament law. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the Bible. Uh, there are a number of words. We'll look at them a little bit later because it fits better in another text. But Psalm 19, go to Psalm 19, and there's this whole list of names for the Bible. And that's that's what this is. This is one of them. Commandments is an... it's The whole book is a book of commandments. It's God's word to us. Uh, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 7, uh, 14, 15. True knowledge of God produces, produces a heart to obey. And with that, you can be assured. If you have a heart to obey... Uh, then you're you're a Christian. That's the idea here. Then he goes on, and he's going to give the negative. Now, he's going to give the other side of this. He says, disobedience exposes lack of fellowship in verse 4. Here he says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is the guy we just talked about. This is the one that went down the aisle and said, here I am, and raised his hand, and said a sinner's prayer, and then went right back to his old life. That's this guy. That's what he's talking about here. The one who says, I have come to know him. Basically, that says he's made the claim that he is a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a believer. He goes around and tell me. I didn't even go around and tell people that. Uh, but uh, th- that's what he's saying. He's saying, but there is nothing here that shows he has any abiding relationship with Christ, ultimately. Uh, there's no you know it's that old question if you were if you are arrested for being a christian is there enough evidence to convict you this is this guy wouldn't get convicted uh, ultimately is what this is saying he says he says does not keep his commandments verse 6 in chapter 1 he says if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness we lie and we do not know the truth that's the idea here Now, this doesn't mean that you've reached sinless perfection. This just means that you're progressing toward it, that that's the pattern of your life, is an onward progression toward Christ-likeness. That's that's what he's wanting them to see here. John says, John is clear here. He says, if this is true of them, they don't keep the commandments. They don't follow the Word of God. They are not adapting a pattern of life that is Christ-like. If that's what they are doing, then they're then they're a liar, and there is no truth in them. Their profession is false. They're the tear among the wheats of Matthew chapter thirteen, verses twenty-four through thirty. Uh, these are the ones that Jesus will say I never knew you, Matthew 7, uh, twenty three. Uh, and basically here a false a false profession is 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 exposed by a life of continual disobedience. That's what Jesus is saying here. So you better test yourself. How are you living your life? (coughs) Is your desire to follow Jesus and you're doing what you can to follow Him? You confess sin. You do. You you go to Him as as First John one nine said. You go to Him and confess your sins regularly. Uh, You trust in Him. You see Him as your advocate and your propitiation. You depend upon that. Or did you just Make a claim to be a Christian and go on your merry little way. You know, that, that's, 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 that's the idea here. And then in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, obedience produces love. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God has been perfected. But now in contrast to the liar in contrast to the one who has made a profession of faith which is which is wrong <clears throat> but whoever whoever means here the applying the test to the true profession uh, whoever does this in an unrestricted manner uh, and he says and, and and he keeps his word who keeps his word is a present tense it means that this is his pattern of life that's the idea here he is one who is trying to live up to the moral standards of Scripture uh, in both heart, soul, and mind. He's not just, not some just external exercise, not some legalistic idea that he actually lives this. Uh, the idea here, word once again, is the same as commands in three and four. It's, bi- it's the Bible. It's the Word of God. Psalms nineteen. I, I kind of, I really. This is one of my favorite psalms. I've preached from it a, a number of times, and it's it's a great great passage. Uh, he says here in verses seven through nine, he gives or, uh, he gives names for Scripture, and and here he, first of all he says the law of Yahweh, and he says of it, it's perfect. And it restores the soul. And then the second thing he says, it's the testimony of Yahweh, which is sure, making, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh, they're right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true and they are righteous altogether. All of those all of those things mean the same thing. His word. The word of God. All of them mean the same thing. And all of them all of them are completely holy by the words that come next. And the last words tell us that the benefit they bring to the believer. So here it says, here it says, here it says, but whoever keeps his word, whoever trusts in this word whoever puts whoever follows its commands that's what it says here he says he says but whoever keeps his word truly he's emphasizing it here truly absolutely positively truly there's the emphasis is the emphasis in contrast to that false profession the obedient one becomes then it's the interesting thing here is he says that, that can be that can, that obedient one uh, that one who who truly keeps his word in him the love of God has been perfected That's what he's saying here saying in him the love of God has been perfected which is an interesting phrase Ultimately what it means is you become a conduit of God's love to a lost and dying world That's what he's he's saying here. Uh, The love of God, it can either either mean uh, God's love or it can mean our love for God. But if we look at John 4.19, I think it gives us really the idea of what he's meaning here. In 4.19, he says this, We love because he loved us first. In other words, the love that we have for God is produced by the fact that God loved us. And because God has loved us, we now can love that's that's what he's saying here we become a channel of God's blessing to other people we become that door which presents God to other other individuals and the love of God to other individuals that that's that's ultimately what he's saying here that love is perfected it has been perfected perfected means it's full it completes its mission it reaches its intended goal that is love loves God but that that is God's love comes to its purpose gold when we obey his word and, he, and, and in so doing we can know with assurance that we are in Christ because it results in the love of God in our life that's, that's the idea that he wants us to understand and then the last thing he's going to tell us is, verse, is, in, verse, is in verse 6 but I'm going to pick it up uh, I, I kind of think that last little sentence in verse 5 ties these two together. He, he says, but by this we know we are in Him. That's that's the first thing he says. By obedience, we know that we are in Him. John Stott wrote this in his commentary. The whole context and especially verse 6, suggest, um, uh, suggests that the phrase in Him again refers to Christ. To be in Christ is Paul's character characteristic dis- description of the Christian, but John uses it too, to be or to abide <clears throat> verse 6 in him is the equivalent of the phrase to know him in 3 and 4 and to love him in verse 5, in other words those are all equal phrases, they all mean the same thing you're in Christ uh, <clears throat> being a being a christian consists in essence of a personal relationship to to god and christ knowing him loving him abiding in him as the branch abides in the olive tree john john 15:1 mm-hmm. this is the meaning of eternal life john 17:3 uh, and 1 john 5:20 and we know that the son of god has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in the son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life that's that's what he's saying here that's what he's wanting us to see here this is the meaning of eternal life being in christ and then I'm sorry what was that first john 520 thank you verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself walk in the same manner as he walked. It's just very simple here, what he's saying here. Uh, it's the same construction, uh, he who says, the same construction of verse 4, it's a claim that can be tested. And verse 5 told us a false claim could be tested. Verse 6 is telling us this, this is a statement of fact. Uh, it's a statement of having intimacy with God. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that's that's ultimately the idea here and, and he goes on and he say ought uh, ought is an obligation it's a moral spiritual lo- uh, logical uh, logical obligation if the claim is fellowship with god one is e- internally compelled to walk as christ did that's ultimately what he's saying here he's saying what you're going to do is your life should reflect the one whom you're following uh, you should be Christ-like in your, in your walk and, and so then the question becomes well how did Christ walk as a man obviously we can't walk as Christ as God but we can walk as Christ as man well how did he walk well John 13 12 through 17 tells us he walked in sacrificial love uh, we should do the same 1 Peter two twenty one through 23 says uh, that he endured sufferings and trials we may be called upon to do the same. Peter, when we were in first, first, first Peter he spoke of that. Uh, we should walk as a servant, we should have a servant's attitude, Mark ten, forty five. We should certainly be knowing and using the Word of God, Matthew four, one through four. Uh, striving against sin, all of the chapter of Matthew four, that's Jesus' encounter with Satan. Uh, uh, with humility and gentleness, Matthew eleven twenty nine. With a passion for the lost, we should have passion for the lost. We should be concerned about them luke chapter nine ten in obedience john four twenty one in prayer mark one thirty five and in submission hebrews five seven and matthew twenty six thirty nine these are the way Jesus walked. These are at least some of the ways Jesus walked, and the, and ones that we can indeed imitate. First John one seven told us, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's that's the ultimate end here. Uh, in these te- in this text. In this text, uh, Jesus has told us God has f- fixed the way that we can know Him. He's provided an advocate to stand in our defense, to stand with us, and we and and not only that, that advocate propitiated our sin. That advocate. Turned away the wrath of God. Uh, the the oldest Greek use of this word, or the derivative that this word comes from, basically means to turn a red face white. You know, in other words, turn away anger. That's what that's what it means to turn away anger. Turned away the anger of God that was rightly directed at you. It's it's done with. And as a result of that, <clears throat> as a result of all of that. Uh, we can know that we know Him. And He's given us these tests. Here are these tests, and they all revolve around obedience. Are we walking? Are we following? Are we obeying? Are we, are we, <clears throat> are we keeping His commandments? Are we walking in that manner? Yeah, that's the idea here. And if not, we're a liar. That's the bottom line. That's what John says. Any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, i like to, like, when uh, the lady... this uh, is uh, the lady that was going to get stoned mm-hmm. and told her, you have been forgiven, go and sin no more. Yes. And that's what the Bible is about, instructions on how to stay clean. Exactly. Uh, so that worse things don't happen to you. Um, that's what the word about is. I, mean, I was going to ask, would you say that... Um, we have been given like a white robe. But we are given, don't get dirty no more. They, uh, I don't think we got it yet. It yet. We haven't got it yet because we're they, still we're still in that role of like Peter at the foot washing, where we're walking around getting our feet dirty, and we still got to get them cleaned off. But when He calls us home, then you get the white robe. Right. You won't get dirty anymore. Then you're removed from sin, but the presence he of sin. Us from yeah. 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 He makes us fit to get that robe right. down the road. Let's close. Oh, go ahead. You I think you said that we don't know him. We don't obey because we know him. But we know that we know him because we obey, is that what? no that's not what I said. If I did say that I got myself very confused. We know experientially. That's that's the first no. And from experience we know that we know, and, and the second one is, it's a progressive knowledge. In other words, there's an event that happened in the past that affects us all the way into the future, and, and it's presently true. And it's that we know Him, and out of that and knowledge, then is to produce obedience, because this isn't a this isn't just an intellectual exercise. This is a heart exercise. This is a soul exercise. This is we have become believers, and we are indwelt by the Spirit. And that's ultimately how we actually know Him anyway, because I'm not the teacher, the Holy Spirit is. You know, and you have to remember that. Every one of you can pick up this Bible and know it, because you have the, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God within you, who teaches it to you. Now, He has given teachers to kind of help you with that, but, but we're just assistants, you know, at best. Uh, we're, like I've I've said before, uh, teaching staff is is uh, is uh, is support staff. We're to support you. You know, that that's what we're for. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher. But but the knowing the knowing there in that text is that we can know that we know and it's all it all has to do with the fact that we have received Jesus Christ. Having received Jesus Christ, we had an experience in the past, it's an ongoing experience. And we are coming to know him progressively as that experience unfolds. That that's the idea of that passage, okay. and it results in us becoming more and more obedient. Ultimately, you know, I'm not. Hopefully, I'm much more obedient today than I was when I got saved forty something years ago. Hopefully, there's been progress. <laughs> you know, some days I wonder, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but hopefully there has been been progress. Yeah. Like, uh, Hebrew says, uh, "Don't take your sacrifice lightly." No, no, don't tread on the blood of Jesus <laughs> okay let 's close good, right on time, Lord God, we thank you this morning we thank we thank you we thank you for this text. we thank you for our advocate Jesus. We thank you that we don't stand alone. Jesus stands with us, and Father, we give you thanks for that, and we give you thanks too father that that wrath was turned from us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's how he stands with us now as our, as our intercessor, as our advocate. And, and we, we come before you this morning just grateful and thankful for that. And Father, we cannot be anything but obedient because you are our God and you are the one who has saved us, who has called us into your holy presence. And Father, we thank you. And we just ask that we would go now praising you, glorifying your name, and walking as Jesus walked. And we thank you in his name. Amen.